Welcome to another episode of Capital Roots, brought to you by Capital Farm Credit, where we bring you the experts in the ag industry. In addition to a few Texas legends along the way, we're your hosts, Joe Patronella and Clint Cryer. Thank you for listening. Now let's get back to our roots. Welcome back to another episode of Capital Roots. Today, we've got Tim Lust, the CEO of the National Sorghum Producers. Tim, how are you doing today? Doing great today. Thank you for joining us. Hey, why don't we start off with you telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, raised in uh, Texas, western Texas Panhandle, uh, Palmer County, Laz Buddy America, and uh, grew up on a diversified family operation, um, registered Angus cattle, a small feedlot, um, uh, and then back then when we had water, all sorts of row crops, uh, and so pretty diversified row crops. Um, part of that that kind of comes into my current world is is we did sorghum seed, we did sorghum silage, we fed sorghum grain, so um, had a lot of sorghum experience. I just didn't know it because I thought I was just a kid working on the farm. Sure. I lived in Palmer County for just, just a little while at, at Farwell. I don't know if I've ever told you that before. Where's Palmer in terms of the, the panhandle? Tim, you want to answer that? So straight east of Clovis, New Mexico, uh, on the on the uh, state line with, with New Mexico, straight east of Clovis, New Mexico. Okay. Yeah, and Laz Buddy. Have you ever been to Laz Buddy, Joe? No, but it, more I north of here, yeah. Yeah, north, north, northwest of Muleshoe. Okay. Oh. All I, the way to the state line. I'm a, a Brazos County boy, but I really like when we get that far up the panhandle. I just, there's something to it. I like it. So this is great. Yeah, Tim, you'll get it. You'll get a kick out of this. One of the things that Joe and I've been going back and forth today is on stocking rates. We <laughs> we talked to a, a a guy earlier. that was talking about stocking rates at, at one to a thousand uh-huh. acres. And I asked Joe. I said, "You know, Brazos County. What are your stocking rates? What were they?" I told him. I, I said, "With the drought, it's like one to eight or ten or something." Yeah. Can you imagine a that? Bit different down there. No, it's a it's a very diverse world, and when you think you understand it, then you talk to somebody else that their world is very different than yours. So. That's a perfect way to phrase it. We'll I, never fully understand. I really thought that you're going to say. It's not a perfect world, and once you think you've understood it, then you talk to an Aggie. Is what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> I think you'd say you talk to a Raider. You know, that's how I view that. Well, we are in Lubbock, uh, and I'm noting that. Yep. Just smiling. Yep. So, Tim, you're still actively involved in in production agriculture yourself, are, are you not? Still, I am. Family still has. Dad still got uh, farming some farming ground, and then uh, my son is back and uh, involved in the cow herd and and taking care of the cow herd and and taking care of a lot of that and some of the farm ground that goes with that. Yes. Cool. So, Tim's. I don't know if I would call. I, I guess I could call her your better half. I actually met Leanne. She interviewed me for the Tall program. Ah. Joe was in Tall. Yeah. Did you participate in Tall? I, I did not. Uh, I, I participated in a call in tall by being the stay-at-home spouse that was uh, stuck <laughs> taking care of small children. You uh, spoke to our tall, tall program. Did a great job. I, I, I have spoke to a number of tall programs, uh, but uh, yeah, on on the front end, Leanne went through it, and uh, I, I stayed home. So, uh, but obviously, a great program. Uh, uh, despite 
some of the people that were let in the class, obviously. Uh, um, but uh, but you just met Joe. I can't believe you would say that about him. Yeah, that, that's Weird. not who I was looking at. Yeah, so. y'all can't see it, but he was looking directly across at Clint. So it's interesting. I'm feeling kind of incriminated here. <laughs> so in the cattle business, in the sorghum business, it'd be a representation. What's uh? What do you do over there for? as the CEO for National Sorghum Producers? You know, people ask that question, and, and um, I think it changes as the size of the organization changes. And uh, so when I first started, it was a very small organization. And uh, uh, so, Chief Spearcatcher, you do it all. Uh, you have to do much like our farmer CEOs uh, that we represent. Uh, you do it all. Uh, you know, the glamorous stuff and the unglamorous stuff, you do it all. Um, I think obviously as, as things change and seasons change and organizations change, um, you know, you, you get some of that to, to be delegated to others and take on some of that in, in other areas. So, you know, from today's standpoint, um, you know, still involved to some extent in policy, but not nearly as good at policy as I once was because mm-hmm. uh, just a lot of other responsibilities, obviously, today uh, in terms of that, uh, you know, work through some non-traditional uh, funding sources for our association. Uh, and so we have for-profit subsidiaries. It's very unique. Not a lot of trade associations have that, but uh, the way or one of the key ways we've gone about financing the operations of, of our association to be able to meet our growers' needs and take care of legislative and regulatory uh, functions. And so, of course, items like that come back in and, and get to deal with all the business issues that y'all deal with and uh, some of those things that, that go there. Um, you know, from my standpoint, um uh, my family drilled some of the first irrigation wells in Palmer County, and uh, what that really meant is, is in the 80s, I got to f- find out we were going to run out of water uh, before a lot of our neighbors did. And, um, you know, family, I uh, never forget the corporation meeting when my grandfather uh, set everybody down and said, I think we should sell a bunch of the land and go buy ranches somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And and a number of my family members did. Um, you know, my parents had a whole bunch of kids in junior high and high school at the time, and they had other family land uh, on the other side tied to the region and, and certainly stayed. But uh, certainly have seen that decline in water uh, for many years, and I think that's a lot of what drives my passion for sorghum uh, is, is – um, you know, the water issues and certainly as as we've gone forward and just seen the challenges there, um, you know, it is, you know, what's the perfect solution and then it comes what's a, a solution mm-hmm. and then how do we put those solutions together to make this work and, uh, you know, I think sorghum certainly has a role to play in that and uh, certainly uh, I don't think water is going to get any less important uh, in the Texas South Plains and Panhandle. Uh, over the next 50 years and so uh, you know really trying to figure out how we make things work out here Uh, because um, obviously if you would let it rain Clint it would be a lot easier out here Uh, and uh, uh, certainly no um, commenting with some international guests that were here that were you know talking about how it was and you know, I just reminded them, yes, and we're driving 75 miles an hour down the road in an irrigated pickup. Uh, 
while our forefathers were, you know, on the back of a horse uh, or in a wagon. And so, um, you know, perspective is a wonderful thing. Sometimes we're very blessed, um, but there's certainly challenges in agriculture at the same point in time. Um, you know, sorghum industry hasn't had the level of investment that we would have loved to have seen. Uh, but, um, you know, as we go through some of these challenges uh, and, and see some of the needs there, I think there's opportunities for that investment to come in. And, uh, you know, technology is pretty exciting what we can do today that uh, just wasn't possible even 10 years ago uh, in terms of making genetic improvement. Gotcha. So, I mean, sitting here in Lubbock, Texas, in the land of cotton, you know, historically speaking, I mean, where's, where's, where's sorghum's place? I mean, let's talk about some yeah. of that. Well, you got to remember, that's a perspective that you have as somebody that's been through the last 25 or 30 years. Um, if you go back um, and, and look at the history acres out here, uh, there were a lot of sorghum acres, and then they went way down in 1985. Uh, a lot of our acres went into CRP, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a tremendous number of sorghum acres out here that went into, sorghum, into CRP in 1985 and really detrimental to our industry. Um, and some of those acres coming back out, some of those acres will never come back out. Um, but you know, when we look, uh, forward on, on what it is, you know, different geographic areas are going to find different solutions. Um, I think forages are, are probably a part of the future of this area. Um, this year's a perfect example. We got enough rain to grow some forage. Um, a lot of beautiful sorghum's not heading out. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to make a grain yield. Uh, a lot of cotton looked really good early, but it's it's going to be tough now. So, um, you know, I think forages are a part of that, that maybe we can take advantage of that moisture when we get it. Um, certainly seeing a big increase in sorghum silage in the Texas panhandle and uh, as a part of that. Um, but, you know, uh, I think, you know, every generation has had their challenges and, uh you know, the, I have great faith uh, that they'll, you know, the generation behind us will figure it out and uh, and go forward with it. But it's probably not going to look exactly like it does right now. Change is inevitable. Embrace it can be good, I guess. <laughs> yep. Yep. No, it's it's it, it's pretty exciting from my standpoint to see some of the some of the changes that uh, you know I visit with our growers sometimes, and um, you know as exciting and fast as technology is, it's still slow. You know, mm-hmm. it's still six to ten years to the field on a lot of this stuff, and so it's pretty exciting to see some of the things that I know are coming uh, that aren't here yet. And I think if you talk to most people in R and D, um, you know that's uh, that's where they are too. Is 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 technology increases continue and uh certainly it's pretty exciting to see what we can do from a genetic standpoint yep yep so you made you made a comment there i want to dive deeper into you talked about the level of investment in the sorghum industry uh maybe you know i kind of took that as maybe an inference that it hasn't had the level of investment that maybe some of the more uh prevalent commodities maybe maybe that's not even well said to be honest with you but let's talk about what you were saying there well, I don't think it's any secret. Um, you know, companies uh, work based upon stockholder investment. There's quarterly reports that come out every quarter, and corporations are expected to make a stockholder return. Um, you know, what that often means is it was easier to make money uh, on corn or on soybeans, uh, and in some cases cotton, than it was not just sorghum, any other crop. 
Right. Um, so, you know, saw significant investments go other directions. Um, the other side of that, you know, our industry is kind of unique in, even in the fact that, you know, we spent uh, almost 10 or 15 years just not only not getting investment, but with major corporations actively trying to kill our industry. Because mm-hmm. uh, the fact was they can make more dollars on a bag of seed uh, of another crop than they could on sorghum. And uh, so, you know, we've we've gone through some interesting times over the years where, um, you know, people that uh, were, you know, somewhat in the seed business were somewhat in the sorghum seed business, but they were a whole lot more in some other seed business. And right. so certainly, uh, you know, nothing new, uh, nothing sinister about it. It's just business, but it hasn't always been kind to our industry. So uh, it is interesting today to see, you know, some companies certainly turning around and investing more back into sorghum directly. And, uh, you know, and progress is moving forward at a whole lot faster rate when you see that. Yep. So some of those advancements and some of those genetic things that we've talked about, what's what's on the horizon exciting for, for her? Well, you know, yield increase is the one that everybody, you know, every farmer gets excited about yield increase. And, and uh, you know, we saw a little bit of that down on the Texas Gulf Coast this year. I mean, broke mm-hmm. records down in that Corpus area. Uh, farmers had never had sorghum yields as high as, as they did in some of those areas down there this year, even though it turned off dry you know, pretty early. I mm-hmm. mean, I think we took the top end off that crop down there um, uh, with it getting dry, but still some, some significant gains there. Um, certainly, you know, I, I called it on, you know, in, in the old Roundup Ready days, uh, the easy button. Uh, certainly some of those traits are, are coming to sorghum. Some over-the-top grass controls, just one that, you know, has always been a problem with sorghum, uh, having Johnson grass issues. And so having some of that technology is a big advance. Uh, certainly we've had our insect challenges over the years and some genes of resistance there on the insect side that, uh, that have came and probably more that are coming uh that help on that so it's an overall package there's never one silver bullet Mm -hmm. uh but uh it's about getting that pipeline full of new traits that continue to come out over time to be able to be competitive on those acres definitely definitely i'm curious i I actually haven't heard we've got offices down there but in that coastal bend area what kind of yields did we see well I, i mean i think you saw a lot of 65 to 75 pound 100 pound of course down there you talk pounds and not bushels but right. you know the one that got the people's attention is there's you know a few farmers that had over 10,000 pounds sorghum down there mm-hmm. and uh for that area um you know those are exceptionally good yields yep it's interesting how the vernacular changes it's by where you are hard to keep up when yeah. you were talking about pounds you started talking about south texas i started thinking about cars not bushels <laughs> Which takes you back even further and uh, really will confuse the young generation when, uh, yeah. So, uh, again, a perfect example of how uh, not very many miles apart, uh, you have totally different weights and measurements and, and way business trades and, and how, how things react. So, mm-hmm. ha- had to learn that early in my career. Yeah, don't don't go to South Texas and start talking bushels. So they'll just look at you strange. So. <laughs> it's in the water. Going back to, to NSP, uh, tell us a little bit how you got to NSP. Well, um, I had invested a fair amount of education in myself, and, uh, and my parents certainly helped with that. Um, and so before I went home, I thought I should have a real job somewhere for a little while in case the home thing didn't work. And um, so 
you know, young people asked me about career choices. And I said, well, I went to, you know, went to national sorghum producers for 18 months, 30 years ago. <laughs> and, uh, and it's a true statement. I didn't intend to stay more than a couple of years. Um, when I went, uh, we were just coming out of the eighties, uh, still pretty rough financial times, uh, on, in the farming communities and, and, uh, still some challenges there that weren't necessarily support a, an extra family and, uh, the size of the operation really wasn't conducive to that. So I really thought I'd be there for a very short time. Um, you know, grandfather was involved some in the political side, but, uh, probably because my grandfather was involved on the political side, my father was not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so never really, uh, intended to be in the political side, never had much background in the political side, but, uh, as got into it, uh, certainly found it fascinating and, uh, ability to, uh, be able to influence, uh, changes for the positive, uh, was something that, uh, certainly have have tried to do over the years and uh um much like other things you know we some some of our businesses um you know one of our subsidiaries is a crop insurance subsidiary and uh people ask why did we get into that was it for all the great money and i said no it was because we were getting killed on crop insurance and uh we were always two to four years behind on knowing when something was uh you know coming out we just didn't understand the business so a lot of what we got into uh, in terms of uh, uh, that business was really to try to understand insurance. And then as we understood it more, uh, a lot of fixes that needed to be made. So spent, uh, you know, I'm not very efficient. Uh, it's taken a long time to fix a number of the crop insurance problems in sorghum. But uh, we're making progress and certainly a lot better today than it was uh, at one point in time. Good deal. Yep. Hey, while we're on NSP, Tell me a little bit about your membership, either in terms of numbers or kind of the demographics or what, what all, where they come from. So certainly, and, uh, you know, it's a, a multi-tiered process. So we have, uh, just individual producer members at uh-huh. various different levels. Uh, and then, uh, we have a program, what we call our e-member program, where somewhat like the cotton industry, we work with elevators, okay. uh, on yeah. a program where producers support through their local elevators. Um, so key component of our membership um you know we say that our membership is is you know primarily south dakota to south texas uh and those are our key growing states uh kansas being our number one state uh by a pretty sizable amount from a bushel standpoint uh most years it rains in kansas uh it's uh it's it's raining the strange part this year is is it's rained in western kansas but uh central kansas that normally sees that rain is is struggled this year but uh uh from a bushel standpoint that that tends to be our largest production state so from a membership standpoint um pretty pretty diverse in terms of those plain states uh, we are a little bit unique on our board of directors as well is is that uh, while uh, industry can't be in a leadership role in our organization uh, we do our, allow industry to be on our board of directors um, so okay. we actually have some uh, you know our largest end user in the united states ceo is on the board of directors uh, uh, one of our seed company ceos on our board of directors and uh, um, you know one of, one of the bankers for all of us uh, is on our board of directors. Uh, uh, Mark Adams with CoBank uh, serves on our board of directors. So, um, you know, just found that that perspective, um, our, you know, leadership uh, certainly wants to be producer-led. 
but uh, at times it's been very valuable to have those other outside board members on as well that just bring unique perspectives as to what's going on in agriculture and, and what's happening in the country. Yep. Yep. So within the U.S. and in, in you guys' footprints, have you seen any newer growing, uh, newer areas to growing sorghum? Yeah. Our fastest growing state is Pennsylvania. So, really? But, and, huh. and, and that's not strategic just because G.T. Thompson's chairman of the committee. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, so, you know, I think it's interesting to see as, as uh, our food industry continues to grow um, and uh you know, industry that literally started at zero. When I first started, it was talked about, but it, there really wasn't any bushels that went there. And as that industry continues to grow, um, it's interesting because obviously a lot of food processing on the coasts and uh, continue to see acres grow in, in non-traditional states of Pennsylvania and California and, and uh, some areas like that, Indiana. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and so um, interesting to see some of those acres pop back up in different areas. Yep. Yep. That's interesting. That's interesting. So I've got an off the wall question for you. I've got another buddy that's in, in grain sorghum. He wears a little fancier glasses, uses a little fancier pins than, than probably what you do, but he's gone a lot of exotic places with sorghum. So I got to ask you what, what's some crazy places that sorghum has taken you? You know, mine are uh, not the extensive list of countries he has, but uh, you know, I just say that China twenty. 26 years ago was a very interesting place when you got out into the rural areas and uh, um, I had uh, spent a lot of time working in Mexico early in my career I started out on marketing marketing side so I, I spent a lot of time with end users in Mexico trying to teach them how to hedge mm-hmm. and uh, thought I was a bit worldly um, <laughs> and uh, then I went to China and, and I can assure you I was not. And, uh, so, uh, certainly makes for some entertaining, uh, stories every once in a while. in, in terms of some of those days, uh, you know, the, the irony of that is, is, you know, some of those stories were really so focused in Southern China mm. and you go back there today and you just have these enormous cities, uh, with six lane highways and bullet trains and mm. it is just fascinating to see the change in southern china during my career yep uh, uh of what that looks like yep it's interesting that you say that we talked about the tall program earlier and i've talked a little bit about it on the podcast previously but my international tall, uh, trip with tall was to china in 2008 and so i remember being uh, shanghai southern china i guess this i'm going to illustrate in live to all of our listeners, my ignorance of the geography, but remember going to Shanghai and what you, you made me think of when you were talking about the rapid increase in buildings and how it's grown up in cities and such. But from 1994 to 2008, I remember the stat, it was like there were something like 12 or 1400 buildings built in Shanghai over 40 stories tall. Wow. And so over the period of 14 years, you think about that, that is just crazy. Yeah. But a little different around the world. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, our our fancy glasses wearing buddy is listening. I, I hope he is. So uh, I don't I don't tell stories as well as he does either. But uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, certainly, uh, you know, I think there's there's some others that certainly are memorable. I had finished a, a very reputable uh, MBA here at the fine University in Lubbock of Texas Tech and. Uh, uh, 
ended up early in my career in in South Africa and um, um, you know seen the the wars that were marketing wars that were going on between Coca-Cola and Pepsi um, you know just some fascinating things early in my career uh, in terms of you go there in the name of sorghum and and certainly it was a sorghum mission but the other things you just pick up and learn and uh, entrepreneurs that you meet along the way uh, certainly uh, been very educational. Um, something that I have always enjoyed about this job is, is you never know whether you know you're on a turn row uh, visiting with a farmer, or uh, whether you're overseas visiting with an end user, or whether you're in Washington D.C. Um, trying to work through policy issues. And so, certainly never been boring, and uh, certainly been extremely diverse in terms of uh, experiences. So. Tim, you've mentioned end users a couple of times now on your board and then just now, and I admittedly don't know much about the sorghum industry, so you can educate me and, and through me, the listeners. What are some typical end users of the product? So generally, uh, most of my career, I would have said a third uh, domestically for the livestock industry, mm-hmm. a third uh, internationally um for exports and a third to a bunch of other different categories um the last probably five years um china has been a a dominant buyer of our crop and so you know probably on average over that time uh china has bought uh 65 percent of our crop uh the u.s ethanol industry uh with ethanol plants in western kansas and the texas panhandle uh, using uh, about 30, 25 to 30 percent of our industry. And, and uh, you know, then after that, um, you know, we drop quickly into categories like pet food and human food. Uh, huh. And uh, so, uh, you know, today those those numbers actually rival the amount of sorghum going into into poultry in the United States. So mm-hmm. um, big changes because when I first started, we had a tremendous amount of sorghum going into poultry in, in Arkansas, uh, but a lot of logistical changes there with unit trains that just totally changed the dynamics of that because a lot of our Kansas sorghum was trucked to Arkansas. And with the uh, advent of unit trains, a lot of that market just totally went away and, and moved to Minnesota corn. So we talked about China a little bit, but going back to the comment about the rapid increase in, in grain sold to China, can we talk about a little bit about what the reasons behind that might be? Yeah. Um, they have a billion people there. I think you kind of mentioned that or, or more. Um, the number one alcohol uh, in China is a product called Baijiu, uh, which is sorghum-based. Um, just to give you, you know, you were talking size and scope, just to give our listeners size and scope, um, this is bigger than the whiskey and the vodka industries combined worldwide. Okay. And what was the, what was the metric that you used? How, was it gallons? Well, liters? if you, yeah, if you base it on liters, uh, it is actually larger in size than both of those. And the vast majority of Americans have never heard the term. Uh, because it's not a product that, that has been exported until the last couple of years. Uh, you know, every ounce of it has been consumed within China. And uh, so uh, of our sorghum that goes to China, about 50% of it uh, goes into, uh, into that human-grade alcohol product. Um, and so that's been a big driver uh, in terms of our sales there. rest of it primarily goes into the animal industry in southern China. 
and uh, you know that is predominantly ducks uh, with some swine. Um, I remember um, early on as we were breaking into the China market, uh, visiting with a very large swine grower uh, in southern China and uh, kept pushing him that they needed to buy sorghum. And he finally just stopped me and, and in somewhat broken English said, you don't grow enough sorghum in your country to feed our ducks. Why are you worried about our pigs? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, <laughs> again, it's that size and scope factor of just allows you to put in perspective uh you know just how large the livestock industries are uh in china and what that demand is uh and so uh primarily those are the the three markets in china where our product goes and that was was that baijiu 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 is you know depending upon your accent uh, exactly how it comes out but yes Mm -hmm. i figured i figured out that a bunch of Texans, 25, I think there was, in, a, in the group that went over there, we, we had the wrong accent. You think? <laughs> <laughs> uh, they all enjoyed talking to us, though, because they you obviously know they like to practice uh, uh, their English. Luckily for my tall trip, we went to Australia. So, it, well, I mean, our accents were also incorrect, but probably not as wrong as y'all's were. <laughs> That's good stuff. That's good stuff. So, Tim, uh, circling back to the organization, what would you say if you had to sum up what the mission of National Sorghum Producers is? Well, you know, our mission is really to lead positive change in the regulatory and legislative processes. Uh, just pretty simple, uh, tied back to, to profitability and, and uh, then opportunity. Um, you know, when we look at agriculture, um, it, there, there, there is a lot that happens at the farm level and farmer decisions really matter. And I'm always amazed at the, at the creativity and the work ethic of our producer members. But there's a lot of things that happen that are just outside their control. Uh, if we look back at 2018, uh, we had came off of a couple of really good years with China pulling on sorghum really hard. Um, things were going really well. Our industry was growing. Um, and then we end up in the middle of a trade war. Um, and the next thing we know, we wake up and we have 178% tariff on sorghum and all sorghum trade has stopped. Yep. Um, didn't, didn't really have anything to do with sorghum other than the fact that we were doing about a billion dollars worth of trade with China and what they wanted to, what they were upset over uh, was about a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. And so they looked around and said, there's one that's about a billion dollars. Let's, let's go after that one. Yep. Um, and so, you know, it just reminded me this last week, uh, WTO came out and, and made some announcements of some cases that were tied back to China during that time frame that have just now gotten ruled on five years later. So if we had not been able to negotiate our way out of that uh, in 2018, you know, we'd still have 178% tariff on our largest market, uh, which means that would not be a market. And our industry would look very different today. So it's just things like that from a policy standpoint that uh, are the reason why uh, national sorghum producers exist, uh, why our board of directors volunteers their time. Staff gets paid. We get paid mm-hmm. to do this. It's our mm-hmm. job. Uh, you know, we have tremendous board leadership that volunteers their time to, to do this. Um, and uh, without that leadership, you know, that wouldn't be possible. Um, unfortunately, when we look at the last 
three, four years um, uh, with huge droughts over large portions of the sorghum belt. Um, I don't know what it is about y'all bankers, but you expect to get paid back. Um, Seems kind of narrow-minded to me, but uh, you do. Um, And the reality of that is, is when we look at many of our members' operations, um, if it hadn't been for that disaster assistance money the last three or four years, uh, there's just no way they would have paid out. Um, And agriculture, again, would look vastly different without a lot of operations of, of good family farms. Uh, that didn't do anything wrong. They they weren't over leveraged. They weren't mm-hmm. bad producers. They were showing up every day, doing everything right. Uh, but Mother Nature's pretty tough, and uh, and governments, world governments, are pretty tough. So why does National Sorghum Producers exist? Uh, because of those two factors that our members have to face every day. Yep, and that's that's tangible value that goes right back to those producers, in my opinion. That's a fantastic answer too. Back to your comment on, on bankers, a wise man once told me when I was getting into the banking business that it's not about the return on the principal, it's the return of the principal. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So as we, as we talk about, this is called capital roots. One of the things that we really like to highlight and tell the story of, of all of our individual uh, journeys in agriculture uh, and talk about your passion and where that came from for the industry. Well, I think uh, when when we talk about that, I mean, I think first my passion um, started, you know, very young growing up in farming and ranching family and, and being actively involved in a daily basis and, and seeing my grandparents and, and my aunts and uncles and, and my father and mother, um, you know, be at it and be about it every day and be proud of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that starts. Uh, certainly uh, went through the you know formative years in the '80s and some pretty tough times and uh, saw uh, you know a lot of things that were rolling really high in '79 that by '85 were pretty rough. Yep. Uh, and so certainly um, you know all of that uh, impacted uh, a lot of my upbringing and my passion to be involved not only in agriculture but in policy. Uh, whole whole herd dairy buyout almost took my family out uh, on the registered Angus. Nobody needs bulls if all the cows are dead mm-hmm. and, and if cattle aren't worth anything. And uh, mm-hmm. so policy, you know, certainly taught me early on the impacts of it. Um, you know, when I look at my roots in sorghum, I was very blessed to have some great mentors early on. Um, Jack Ebersbacher was my first boss and, uh, you know, some very influential board members, a lot of which were Texans that, that frankly were your, your customers, um, that, um, you know, invested in me when I was young and, uh, whether that was life skills, whether that was management skills, whether that was political skills, um, you know, um, didn't bring all much talent to the deal, but I was willing to learn and, uh, plenty of people in agriculture that invested in me. Um, something that I'm passionate about today is how do we continue to invest in that next generation? Because, uh, Clint, you're not getting any younger and, uh, I'm not getting any younger. And, uh, so there's gotta be that next generation in agriculture. That's just as passionate as we are. Um, and, uh, and has those opportunities to grow, um, you know, some of my early um, endeavors direct in, in directly in agriculture, you cannot count successes. Uh, the only way they were successes is as I learned from them. Yep. Um, but uh, I think we often learn more from our failures than we do our successes. 
um, and you, you know, pick yourself up, dust yourself off and go again and, and move forward. And I think that's what uh, our forefathers did. And I think that's what agriculture is all about. I think that's what wakes me up every morning and has me passionate about still being involved in agriculture and working for the sorghum industry. Yep. And I think that aligns exactly with what we're about at Capital Farm Credit. Absolutely. Tim, we appreciate you being here today. I consider you a friend, hopefully a customer one of these days. <laughs> we'll get a note ready for you. Uh, it's been an enjoyable no, visit. No pressure there. <laughs> None. Uh, but it, it really has. I've enjoyed the visit, enjoyed the friendship, uh, the relationship, and how you represent the industry and our customers ultimately. So thank you for being here today. Look forward to future visits with you. Happy to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank yes, you. sir. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on Capital Roots. Texas agriculture is the foundation of our story and what makes us family. Capital Farm Credit is a proud member of the farm credit system. We finance farmers, ranchers, agricultural producers, and rural landowners, and we're here to make your vision a reality. We've been serving rural Texas for more than a century. Whether it be traditional, innovative, or lifestyle, we'll help you cultivate new ground. We're all in this together. Because together, we're better. <laughs>